Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 91, a conversation with Kimberly Tronic. Kim was diagnosed with stage three ovarian cancer in 2017 when she was 36 years old. She went through chemotherapy, surgery, more chemotherapy, but a year later, her cancer recurred in her liver. Since then, she's had numerous treatments, numerous surgeries, with her last surgery being in the fall of 2021. On today's episode, she shares her story, and we talk a lot about the impact that cancer has on one's mental health, and she talks about how her mental health and how she coped and handled and dealt with her diagnosis and how it was different from the original diagnosis to how she felt when she had a recurrence. I speak a lot about how cancer is so much more than the physical manifestations on your body. And this episode is really a deep dive into all of those emotions that people go through and how Kim has coped and cried and screamed and laughed and yelled and how all of those things have helped her to get to where she is. Kim is also an author. Her first book was a memoir called Dear Diary, Does This Cancer Make My Ass Look Fat? A heartfelt memoir with a pinch of sarcasm. And it is a great, great read all about her experience. And she is coming out with her second book later this spring. I loved speaking with Kim and I think this conversation will make you laugh. It'll make you cry and experience all of the emotions that come with cancer. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Kim Tronic to the Interlude podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thank you for having me. I have been following you on Instagram for a while and love seeing what you post and what you share. And I thought it would be great to have you come on and talk to people and share your story a little bit more. Well, I very much uh, appreciate this opportunity. Um, I found that throughout the journey, it's honestly kind of just been an honor and a pleasure. And truthfully, it helps me heal by being able to share what it is that I've been through in the hopes that it can help other people heal as well. Um, a big thing that I found when I was going through it, and now even to this day, as I'm hopefully you know on the tail end of this crazy experience, is the importance of support and community. There's, there's very few things as comforting as hearing, I know what you're feeling. I know what you've been through. I understand everything it is that you're experiencing when you're going through this terribly overwhelming experience yourself. So uh, my purpose in being so vocal and so kind of vulnerable, I guess, and honest um, on social media and in my books is just trying to give other people comfort in the way that I found comfort when I was sort of in the beginning of my journey. 
I want to hear about your story, but I do want to later come back to this notion of where you find your community and where you find your support, because very often it's not where you would think it is. Um, I think a lot of people lean towards their immediate family, and sometimes it is from them, and sometimes those people can't support you the way that you really need to be supported. Um, so we'll, we'll come back to that, but can you tell us a little bit about your diagnosis and where life has taken you since that point? Absolutely. So I do want to start out by saying that my diagnosis was, when I say shock, that's, that's a huge understatement. I was diagnosed at 36 years old with stage three ovarian cancer. And I had, I'd say probably about six months off and on pains in my upper right abdomen. And the problem is the pains were so sort of like sporadic and infrequent that I didn't really get alarmed or think anything terrible was wrong because they'd go away, but then they would come back. So after about six months of those pains, I suddenly noticed I was just really bloated and really nauseated or nauseous, nauseated. <laughs> and uh, I took a pregnancy test thinking that might've been the problem. That was not the problem. Um, and then, you know, my dad had said, just go to the emergency room, get checked out. And, and at first the doctors there thought it was a gallbladder problem, but they did, a, you know, all the scans, all the tests. And then the following morning at the hospital, I found out surprise stage three ovarian cancer. And also the reason it came as such a shock was not only was I in perfect health, I'm young. Um, at, at the time, I didn't think I had any family history of cancer. So it kind of was just really seemingly out of the blue. We later did genetic testing and found out that I'm BRCA1 positive. So I did have an extremely high um, uh, predisposition for ovarian and breast cancer. So yeah, the diagnosis was, was definitely uh, one of those things you kind of never think you'll hear until you hear it. And uh, it was surreal and just everything sort of sped up and oh my gosh, all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my hair. Oh my gosh, we're going to start chemo this week. What? What are you talking about? Um, and so we kind of just roll right into chemo. And then halfway through um, my chemo sessions, we paused to do a hysterectomy and a splenectomy. So we took out my ovaries, my uterus, uh, my spleen, and then they scraped a bunch of tumors off the surface of my liver. I recovered and then finished off chemo. So that was a big chunk of 2017. And I was fine for several months. And then unfortunately, the next year in 2018, we found a big old tumor inside of my liver that kind of hadn't really been, it had been quietly growing and we couldn't, we didn't catch it the previous year, but then I had to go back into chemo for a second time. We did a liver surgery and then it's just been, yeah, surgery kind of after surgery and that pesky liver tumor just kind of kept coming back. But finally this past October, I had a massively invasive liver surgery to really go in there with some scissors in my mind and just kind of cut out that part of my liver and get rid of it. And happy to say, just got a clean MRI. So I'm doing great now. Um, but it's been a very bumpy five years, but I've definitely come out of this experience an entirely new person with new perspectives on everything. And Shockingly, I'm actually more stable and more healthy and more happy and more fulfilled than ever before, especially before cancer. So it's been a blessing in a strange way. You know, a lot of people say that, but I think that when you're diagnosed, it can be hard to imagine getting to that point, right? So what was, what was life like for you at 36 before you got diagnosed? 
Before I got diagnosed, um, I was working as a marketing manager in a couple of digital tech startups and uh, copywriting on the side. I had three cats, you know, life was good, um, exercising, just, you know, going out for dinner and drinks and just kind of enjoying life. Um, and everything seemed good. Uh, I'd never really have anything prior to that too difficult, you know, on my plate and just everything was sort of just going along well. And then this just giant bomb detonates right in front of your face. And I remember thinking, you know, how do I deal with this? I've never had a family member or a friend like in my direct tiny circle um, go through it, you know, that I was side by side with. So I was like, man, not only do not do I not know how to deal with this, I wouldn't know if I were my friend what to say and how to deal with it. So, but you have no choice, right? You have no choice other than to just live your life and get up every day and just say, gosh, I have chemo today. I just got to get through it. And gosh, now I feel terrible from chemo, but I just got to get through it. You don't have any other option than to just keep trudging through that muddy water. And it's, it was a hell of a lot harder than I thought. Um, I knew physically it would be tough. You know, you're watching your hair fall out, which for a lot of women is very difficult, myself included. And you feel like your identity is sort of being stripped away. You know, my, my, my uterus and my ovaries were non-functional and they're going to be removed soon. So all these little pieces of your identity are sort of just being lifted away from you one by one, but you just, you have to keep trudging forward no matter what it feels like. And I remember, you know, my mom would say, you know, this is going to be over. This is going to be over. And I was like, I know it's going to be over, but that doesn't help me right now. Right now, I feel terrible. I know it'll be over in six months, but right now, right now is right now. I can't think about six months from now. So going back to what you're saying, absolutely. You know, people say this will be in the rearview mirror and sure, that's, that's a very valid point. But in the moment when you're sick and bald and feel like you want to barf and you can, can't even drink water and you're, you're sad. It, it just feels like it will never end that. And that's, that's a hard feeling to grasp with. It is a hard feeling. Where did you find the support, right? That was before social media. And I mean, there was social media, but I think it was before a lot of these communities came to be. And you mentioned that you didn't really know anybody who had gone through it as you probably wouldn't in your mid thirties, where did you get the support? Well, there's, so in terms of support, I'm very, my family's on the East coast. I live on the West coast. So I'm, I'm very lucky that they were my safety net, but they weren't in the same city as me. So I was very blessed to have, and still do have a very good circle of friends that have really supported me in, in every way possible. But this is kind of a strange little, I guess, piece to this is, I, I did rely on myself more than I thought I would. And, and here's how, and I'll start off with a little story is uh, right after my diagnosis, I went to um, a record store to just get some good music and some comedy CDs. And I was in the section of comedy and I came across this comedian named Tig Notaro. And I, I'd heard of her, but something about that CD just caught my eye. And I, I, I looked at it and read about it. And then I listened to it and Turns out, so she recorded this one CD that I had grabbed. So I think it kind of was fate or kismet, right? So she had been diagnosed. She's been through an unbelievable amount of health problems. And she had just gotten diagnosed, I think, with breast cancer in both breasts after going through a crazy, you know, infection that almost killed her. 
And she gets up on stage at a comedy club here in Los Angeles. And again, I think it may have been either the next day or just a couple of days after she found out this news. And she gets up and she says, you know, I have cancer. And it's weird because with humor, the equation is tragedy plus time equals comedy. But I'm just at tragedy right now. And I was in my car listening to that CD and I just burst out laughing. And I was like, oh my gosh, she knows how I feel. I'm in tragedy too right now. And there's something so kind of like cathartic about that moment. Cause I was like, wait a minute, if she can laugh at her cancer, can I laugh at my cancer? And it was sort of this moment where I was like, you know, this comedian is almost giving me permission that I can, you know, it is a crazy awful overwhelming tragic situation but like wow I can actually look at this through a different lens in a way like I can still remain soft and lighthearted and have moments of laughter and that was a that was kind of a turning point for me because I was like okay if she's laughing I can laugh too so from there I started (laughs) bringing like weird props to my chemo sessions And then those morphed into wearing costumes and wigs to my chemo sessions. And again, don't get me wrong. I had moments of sadness and and despair, but I think sort of like getting permission to maintain a a lightheartedness and of humor throughout it, like that became my crutch. And outside of the family and friends thing, I think like having that within myself really helped me get through it as well. I love it. And there is nothing that says that you have to be serious all the time just because you have this very serious diagnosis. I have a lot of patients who, you know, dress up for chemo and they come with the wigs and the fun outfits and you have to have a little bit of fun with it. Yes, very much so. And, and I will say too, like a a few times people will come up to me (laughs) We're also getting chemo and they're just like, oh my gosh, like your wig is amazing and your costume is amazing. And I saw that, you know, they were having a lighthearted moment, which gave gave me peace as well. So, so kind of becoming this little goofy, uh, crazy girl in the chemo ward, you know, made other people smile and laugh. And I hope helped them in just a quick moment in their, you know, chemo bay that helped me in my own chemo bay. So it kind of just became this like mutually beneficial, let's all laugh together, even though we're here for something that is scary at times. And when you go, you know, there's some chemo kind of cancer infusion suites, you know, sometimes someone said to me, wow, they're they're laughing. They seem to be having a lot of fun. And like, this is right, we're in the right place. Uh, But I think that's just a testament to the people that are there that are just creating this community and saying like, we all have to be there. I think. there was a woman, Emily Garnett, who passed away from breast cancer a couple of years ago, but she would always say that cancer introduces you to the worst club with the best people. And I think that's just so true. It's funny you say that. I think either in my first book or my second book, which I just finished writing, um, I, I say that almost verbatim, which is, yeah, cancer is a club gosh, what is it? With a membership you never asked for. And gosh, it would be great to revoke that membership. But, you know, you got to hang on to that card in your wallet for as long as as is necessary. But that's a great analogy. And I I say that myself. I agree. Yeah. And that really does help with mental health. 
but what did you do? And I'm sure you had hard moments. And did you lean in? Did you search for help outside? Because a lot of people struggle with the the ups and downs. And when you're diagnosed at a young age, the loss of body image and just grieving the life that you were living to now this life that you have to live, that you have no choice but to live. Sure. So to that note, um, I'm currently a big advocate for, for mental health. In fact, I think I just posted something on Instagram today talking about mental health. And I hadn't realized the toll that this would have on my mental health. I was very much prepared, like, okay, I know I'm going to be exhausted. I know I'm going to be nauseated. I know I'm going to, um, you know, all these physical things they prepare you for, but I really wasn't prepared for just how much, I guess, despair and how much fear I would feel. And I knew that was normal, but I just wasn't prepared for like the depth of that. So I actually, maybe this is one small thing I regret. I didn't seek therapy until I finished chemo. So I was in chemo and the surgery, all of that was about April to, I think, October-ish. Um, so roughly six months. And then not until November did I start seeing a therapist for the very first time. If I had to go back and do it again, I would have signed up for a therapy appointment the second I got diagnosed because to this day, almost five years later, I still talk to my therapist roughly once a week because he has helped me so much with, with fear, with breaking uh, toxic thought patterns and just really making me feel like I am a-okay no matter what's going on. And that would have been a huge help during that initial um, journey that I had in 2017. Now, as you mentioned, yeah, I've had some recurrences and I've had, gosh, I think about eight surgeries by now since then. Um, so I'm, I'm way better equipped to handle these things now because of all the work I've done with my therapist. But um, to, to go back to that, um, during those six months before I sought a therapist, um, I kind of was just sort of like white knuckling it through every day, to be honest. Like I, if, if I, I cried, you know, more than I probably admitted in the, in the book that I wrote, um, in the second book, I'm very honest about how much I cried, which is a lot. Um, and crying is such a good release. It is, it's a release of kind of what's in inside and in a physical way gets it outside. So one analogy I go back to sometimes is think about um, if you had a really tough day at work, right? Maybe you had a rough coworker or, or things were overwhelming. Um, I know it makes a lot of people feel better, myself included. If you go home and, you know, call someone or, or talk to your spouse or whoever it may be and, and really just get what's on the inside, get it outside. You sort of purge it, right? So crying and, and just getting it out that way really helped me because a few times I maybe tried to stuff things down and it became like a pressure cooker. You know, you take a bottle of a soda and you shake it up. Okay. It's still inside there. But when you open that cap, you better watch out because there's going to be a whole lot flying out. And <laughs> that's exactly what happened. I think with my emotions and sort of all of these things inside of my head and my heart, um, if I tried to bury it inside it just, it would come out when I least expect it, like that soda just gushing everywhere. So then I quickly came to see like, wow, I need to sort of get these things out instead of keeping them in. And that was one of the reasons that I started journaling my experience, which eventually turned into the first book I wrote. Um, my mom had said, this is kind of 
a very profound moment in your life, why don't you just kind of write everything down that happens each day? And for about two weeks, I was like, no, I don't want to remember this. This is awful. Why would I ever want to write this down and remember it? And then one of my brothers chimed in and said, hey, talk to mom. We think you should write everything down. And I was like, goodness, okay, fine. I'll start writing everything down. So I did. And, and, and for, for many months, it was just me just getting my thoughts out on, on paper and then crying when I needed to. And then eventually that journey came to its end. I started to see the therapist and I mentioned to the therapist, I was writing everything down. And he said, well, are you going to publish this? And I said, well, maybe as an ebook or maybe not at all. I don't know. And he kind of got me to think about that a bit more and encouraged me. Well, if this helped you, maybe this can help other people. And I was like, okay, you're right. So then it became, okay, I am going to do this. And just writing became such a therapeutic outlet for me, as well as, as talking things out that, um, you know, eventually going through all this, I wrote my second book and, and that'll be out, I think sometime this spring. And I, I think everybody's got their own coping mechanisms, but leaning into those dark moments and those dark thoughts, I think is what helps you process them to then get them out. Otherwise, if you just don't deal with them, I'm just, just gonna go back to that soda pop analogy. It'll all come bursting out of you when you least want it to and you, when, when you least expect it. So really sitting in those, those hard questions and those dark moments and asking yourself, you know, what does this mean? Is there anything I can do? And then reminding yourself, it's okay to feel like this. It is okay to be terrified. It is okay to not want to talk to anybody right now. It's okay to cry for four hours straight and then eat Girl Scout cookies, which was a favorite pastime <laughs> of mine. <laughs> I mean, they are um, delicious. I'm waiting for my delivery. Gosh, I, I, need to, I, I need to go order mine. I'm looking at pictures online, like, okay, tag alongs. Yes, I see you, Thin Mints, I see you. But uh, those go along very well with crying for me. So Thin Mints had a very big part in my cancer uh, journey. But uh, so, so to, you know, so yeah, sit in those moments and, and stir in those hard questions and hard thoughts, I think do move them through that machine of helping you process and then essentially purge and then you feel better. And what I'm hearing is that it's okay to give yourself grace and it's okay to just be. And, you know, so many people want to just keep going and they, I always tell people that, you know, cancer and chemotherapy, especially is like the elephant in the room and you can't ignore the elephant. So when you do, you know, I think I, again, and this is speaking as an oncologist, but from what I see is, people who kind of are healthier through chemo in terms of their mental health or people who've kind of embraced it and who've just said, okay, it's here and I'm going to feel it. I'm going to process it rather than maybe pushing it aside. Absolutely. A hundred percent. There's another thing my therapist had said that really sort of stuck with me. And it was, I think at a point when I was really struggling to regain my sense of self and regain my sense of identity as my hair is slowly growing back and my body is slowly, slowly recovering. But, you know, there's still moments of frustration there. Like, gosh, I still kind of can't believe this happened to me. Like, wow, I've really been through it. And he said, you know, cancer is not you. Cancer is something that happened to you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Ooh, light bulb moment, epiphany moment. Yes, you're right. Like cancer is a big part of, of 
you know, my past and, 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 and of, you know, and of my, my current life. And, and I'm sure it will still remain a big part of my future, but sort of in different ways, obviously, but yeah, it doesn't define who I am. It's a, it's a hard thing that happened to me, but it is not, you know, cancer isn't Kim. It's something that happened to Kim and changed her life ultimately, thankfully in a much better way, but it's not who I am as a person. There's still so many more cool components to me than just cancer. But, but having said that again, it did have a giant, wonderful, significant impact on my life. Sure. I think the language that we use is so important. I had a, um, when I was in med school, I had a psychiatry attending and he was very big on language. And one of the things that he would say is, you know, listen to how people speak, right? So in psychiatry, so he says, people will say, I'm bipolar. And he's like, well, no, they're not bipolar. They have bipolar disorder. And that's always stuck with me. And it's the same thing with any illness. You are not cancer. Cancer is not you, like your therapist said. It's something that happened to you. And some people do define themselves a little bit more by their diagnosis than others, but you have the ability to do that or not do that. So now that I'm coming up on the five year mark from my initial diagnosis and and over four years of of being in therapy and doing a lot of work on myself, um, you know, again, yes, cancer is something that happened to me, but now I'm at a point where I'm almost using it as a tool to help other people. So I no longer feel like it's this thing that had a a huge hold over me. I'm using cancer now to go out and try and be a source of light and hope and inspiration to other people. So whereas I used to sort of visualize it as cancer is this sort of gray umbrella that's right above my head and it's got a big grip on me and it's got a big grip on my life. I sort of you know, stepped on that umbrella and put it in the recycling bin. And now I'm using it to my and everybody else's, I think, hopefully best interest to go help other people. That is a great, great analogy. And how did you go from journaling? I mean, it's not that easy. How did you go from journaling to writing to publishing a book? Goodness. So the, so Okay. So I had the manuscript, which I really, again, at first wasn't going to do anything with. And then through the support and encouragement of my therapist, I said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and do something with this. So I went through the steps of, um, hiring a wonderful designer, hiring an editor and researching the publishing process. Um, and so it's sort of self-published through a, a friend's publishing company, Um, and I had a wonderful person helping me do some PR and do some promotions. And I got to do some really cool, um, uh, speaking engagements here and there. And I thought that was it. I really thought that was it until surprise cancer came back the next year. And I said, fine, I guess I'll keep journaling. So I I did. And you know, what's funny is the, in my second book, the final journal passage, I think is in October of maybe 2019. So it's been, you know, a couple of years, but since that final entry, gosh, I like cancer came back to my liver another time. And then I had complications with my breast surgeries and then I had to get a breast reconstruction. Then I got a breast infection and then I got another liver tumor last year and had a huge liver surgery last October, which I mentioned. So all of these things are happening after book two ended. And I just didn't have 
the heart to go and edit cancer book number two, as I'm still fighting cancer again. Mm -hmm. So book number two collected a lot of dust and only in the more recent months did I feel okay and stable enough to pick it back up again. But I gave myself, as you said earlier, grace. It's okay that I can't work on book number two because I'm fighting cancer again. So don't worry about it. And then after this last liver surgery, I felt like I'm ready. It's okay. I can do this. And I did. And now, now again, it's going to come out shortly, but I think accepting the fact that, you know, as we talked about support and community, accepting the, the place that my journey helps other people's journey means a lot to me. I think it's a privilege to be able to sit where I'm sitting today, um, healthy and happy and stable and looking forward to the future and, and changing career paths at, at the age of 41. I'm so blessed and so privileged to be in this seat that I, I want to spread, you know, my message and my experience and, and love and hope to caretakers and to other people facing this battle as, as wide and as loud as possible, because I, this, what a blessed place I'm in right now. And if 36 year old Kim could speak to 41 year old Kim, what would you tell yourself now? Oh gosh. So if, so if pre-cancer Kim could tell post-cancer Kim something. Yeah. Oh gosh, that is a good question. I've thought about what post-cancer Kim would tell pre-cancer Kim, but that, that is an amazing, I've never thought about the equation that way. Oh my gosh. Um, wow. What would, what, what would she say? I think pre-cancer 36 year old Kim would say, you know, don't lose sight of the fact that, you know, life can be good and, and sort of carefree because I lost that for a while. I did. And looking back, I know that's okay, but I did have many, many moments of losing that life is good and carefree feeling. Cause really how can, how can you maintain that feeling when you're course, yeah. going through all of these yeah, health hardships and, and, and mental dips. But I, you know, I was just so full of zest before then. And I think this, that zest got, got dulled pretty hard during, during the journey. And, and obviously I found it again. And now, now I have, I think it even lemonier, that's not a word, a lemonier. <laughs> oh, it's a word now. <laughs> yeah, I just made it. Yeah. I have, I have more of a citrusy zest now, which is awesome. But I think, I think that 36 year old girl would really sort of try and, uh, try and blast out, like, hang on to that zest as much as you can, but also knowing it is okay to, to let that zest get a little unzesty because then the zest will come back. It's a lot of, I love the zest. <laughs> Thank you. I, I like citrus, I guess. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the other thing I want to talk about is, you know, you did have a recurrence and the recurrence is something that many, many people are afraid of and is very paralyzing as people enter that survivorship period, they're always paralyzed by that fear of recurrence. So when you found out that first time that the cancer had come back, walk us through that, those feelings and how you dealt with that. Gosh, as, as people will eventually hopefully read in book number two, I did not deal with it well. I pretty much dealt with it the exact same way I dealt with it the first time, which is shock and then terror 
and then sadness. And then if, if I can be honest, because again, this is in my second book, um, I had some anger coming, coming more so the second time around. Um, I had uh, some big problems with insurance and them denying my, my cancer surgery um, for weeks, if not months. Um, and I'm sitting there panicking, knowing that this tumor is literally growing in me week by week and, and insurance keeps denying over and over again, the surgery that I needed. So that, that resulted in some anger after the shock and the, the sadness. Um, and I might have broken a couple of dinner plates and I might have broken my TV remote against the wall, which of course, then you have to run to target and immediately get a new one before anyone else finds out, but I guess the cat's out of the bag now. <laughs> so um, so yeah, so there, there was more resentment and more anger the second time around, which I find kind of interesting versus the first time. And, you know, by that time I was well into journaling mode. So I knew that was, um, a good outlet for me. Um, my doctors as they were the first time were, were very much there for me the second time. Um, I knew it wouldn't be quite as physically demanding the second time around, because by then it's kind of started exercising a lot more and weightlifting a lot more. And that helped being physically stronger, uh, did help me get through chemo a bit easier and recover from surgery. Um, I think in a more swift way, but, uh, by that time too, I'd been in therapy. Um, so I had sort of a better baseline going into the second round than I did the first time, but as, as much better as that baseline was, I, I, again, I still just had this anger that, that didn't pop up the first time, because I think that anger was coming from a place of a, I just can't believe insurance keeps denying the surgery that I need as cancer is literally expanding in my body and B gosh, I thought I was like one of those one and done people. I thought I was going to be the girl, you know, talking high and wide about, yeah, I can't change my life. It was six months. Oh my gosh. But I never had it again. I just, I'd become so married to that idea that I was like what I call the one and done girl that when it came back with this big tumor in my liver, I was like, no, now I'm not the one and done girl anymore. Now I'm back in chemo girl. Good grief. That is not and that identity that I wanted this time around. So anger more than anything, I think got me. And, and as I said, I was crying a lot more through book number two than, than in the first journey. So it seemed I was like more emotional the second time around, but you know, to go back to that point yet again, it's okay. I realized it's okay. It was okay to cry. And I cried and cried and cried and it was okay to feel angry and was it okay to break the nice dinner plates? I mean, sure, because you can go buy new ones, but you know, not that um, throwing around kitchenware is maybe the healthiest thing. But in the moment, sometimes the girls got to do. Right, you got to do. I mean, you know, no one really uses china anymore, anyway. Right. I mean, did I have to eat spaghetti out of a wine glass? I might have, but you know, we don't have to talk about that. Spaghetti, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, no big deal. Right. And during those moments and of the anger and of everything that you're feeling, were you hopeful? You know, were you still thinking, okay, this is going to be okay. I'm going to get through this and I'll be okay. In those angered moments, I will be completely frank and say, no, no, I, I, I didn't. And in the moment when I'm, uh, you know, I find out insurance denied the 
cancer surgery for the third time? No, that's when I broke the remote control and started just fell to the ground. And I think probably had a panic attack, which was par for the course at the time and, and crying it out. And um, no, I didn't have hope in those moments, but I did discover somewhere along that timeline, I can't pinpoint when, but I did discover this wonderful ideology that I still hold on to this day. In fact, I just practiced this, I think a couple of weeks ago is the 24 hour rule is, you know, for the 24 hours, Kim cry, try not to break so much stuff in your apartment, <laughs> um, but feel what you want to feel. If you want to feel self-pity, go ahead. If you want to roll into those worst case scenarios where everything is terrible, go ahead for 24 hours only. That's it. Then the next day after 24 hours, hopefully after an okay night of sleep, try and do everything you can to think about the good, to think about the fact that it will be okay and try and just bring in as many of those positive thoughts as you can. And remember that they will be true, but no, in those dark moments, I really let myself have that 24 hours of just despair and resentment and all of the dark stuff. And I think because I let myself have those 24 hours, it made it a lot quicker and easier to process and then move on from. But I do have to credit my therapist with a lot of that as well, because he let me a lot of those 24 hour anger kind of periods I sort of unleashed on him, um, which probably helped because he's obviously a trained professional and is very well versed at listening to my uh, neuroses. But even still today, like I said, I use that 24 hour rule. Um, last year when that uh, tumor came back yet again in, in my liver and, I, and that liver surgery ended up being terrible, I, I did utilize that 24 hour rule. And that's something I think helps me cope with things and let me move on from them in a fairly fast manner. I really, really like that. I'm going to steal that. I will credit you, but I'm going to totally tell people that because yeah, in those moments, that is such a good way to kind of, again, let that pressure out from the soda bottle, right? Let all that carbonation out and then it's empty. And then you can begin the next, the healing, the processing, the action steps, whatever they may be. Exactly. I think, yes, I, I actually just, as you were talking, realized that, right, that 24 hour little rule I have for myself is pretty much side by side with that, that uh, soda analogy. That's exactly it for that 24 hours. You go ahead and you shake that bottle and then you let it burst because then when you wake up the next day, right, it's empty. And that's been a release. And that goes back to everything kind of we're mentioning about like crying and getting it out. And that's how I think how you release it and then start fresh and, and start to feel, you know, hopeful again. Yeah. I, I love that. Before we wrap up, is there anything that you didn't touch on that you want to share? And I want to also hear, tell people where they can get your book. Oh, sure. Thank you so much. Um, well, uh, everybody is welcome to check out a copy if they so choose um, on Amazon. Uh, the first book is called Dear Diary, Does This Cancer Make My Ass Look Fat? And, and how did uh, you come up with the title? <laughs> that is not something I would think of in a cancer memoir. <laughs> right. I, I don't even remember. You know, I think one, one theme in the book that, that people uh, may notice is that I, I was very obsessed with my weight during the book. Um, I, I can't remember what I weighed at the beginning before chemo, but, you know, with chemo kills your appetite. It's such a natural appetite suppressant that you sort of or at least I did uh, uh, 
even without trying lost, gosh, I forget 30, 40 plus pounds or whatever. And so it just became this theme that I was obsessed with my weight and did my butt look fat. And it started, I think with a joke of this chemo, like my butt look fat. And then once I realized I wanted to uh, do the book, I was like, wait a minute, do your diary. Does this cancer make my ass look fat? It kind of just all came together that way. So um, that is on Amazon. Thank you so much. Um, and then my second book, uh, again, I'm hoping will be out this spring. I just settled on the title, Dear Diary, Cancer's Back, Give Me Snacks, because I love snacking, apparently. And that that was uh, prevalent through the second book. As I mentioned, the Girl Scout Thin Mints, hashtag Girl Scout Cookies Forever. Um, so yes, Amazon for the first book and eventually the second one. And now, sorry, what was, oh, uh, anything oh, else to mention? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, I think back to community and support, um, like you said, at 36, I really didn't know anyone personally that, that cancer had touched and I was not involved in any cancer groups or any cancer communities online because, you know, I hadn't needed to be, but once I saw that there's this humongous community online, people all over the country, all over the world, um, that know what you're going through and not just for people like me, but also caretakers. I, I will say this experience, my, my boyfriend, John at the time was just a hero. And I saw how hard this was for him too, as a caretaker. In fact, there were many times, I think this may have been harder on him than it was on me. Cause I was just going through the motions. I'm going through chemo. I'm coping however I can, but he's kind of on the sidelines and there's nothing really he feels like he can do. So mm-hmm. I learned a lot that it's it's really difficult for caretakers as well. So having said that, yeah, these online communities, my gosh, I, I started kind of following some, some women on Instagram who are very vocal about their own journeys. And I found so much comfort in reading their honest and vulnerable thoughts. And I was like, good grief. They feel the exact same way I do. They, they know how scary it is to kind of look at your mortality and face the reality of your mortality. And they, they put it into these amazing, eloquent, you know, social media posts and good golly, that just made me feel so amazing to read someone else's experience that knows exactly how I felt. So I started following more and more women online or not just women, I guess, uh, other, other, um, Mm -hmm. cancer thrivers, cancer survivors. Um, and then I, I kind of stumbled into some other forums and other communities. There's, um, one particular group called I had cancer and I, I blog for them a few times a year. And I actually just recently became um, a digital ambassador for them. And it really is just amazing. Even still, uh, still to this day, I go in and read other people's stories, whether they just started their journey, whether they're way past their journey, because this journey doesn't end after surgery and chemo. It doesn't, it really doesn't. Right. So you know, you could be, I, I read about a girl recently who's, I think, just celebrated her 10 years uh, post-cancer of, of no cancer, but she still has anxiety about it. And I was like, man, I'm still so much closer to my journey because of last year. But I think all cancer survivors and thrivers can relate to that. Just because you're done with it physically, you don't just shut the door on it yeah. forever because it stays with you mentally. So I think those kind of communities online, Instagram, I've found so many wonderful people to follow. Um, I had cancer has been a huge resource for me. Um, there's a group called Sharsharet. Um, I believe they're, they're all over the country as well. And just finding the outlet 
all of them or one of them, whatever it is that's right for you, I think is really key in getting through it and then getting sort of past it to the best of your ability is just community, community, community all the way. And there are so many amazing groups out there and kind of what you echoed is finding one that's right for you because you may stumble on one and that may not be the right group for you. And if there isn't one, you can start one. That's Absolutely. the beauty of social media. But the other thing that I think is important is that it is okay to separate yourself from a group or a community or social media in general if you need to, right? I think sometimes we can enmesh ourselves in it. Um, and sometimes it's a lot. Sometimes you need to take a step back. And so I want to validate that it's okay to do that. If reading about someone's experience is triggering for you, it's okay to unfollow that person or mute them or, you know, whatever it is. 100%. That's the literal reason that it took me two years to edit my second book, because I was like, I am tired of thinking about cancer. I am tired of talking about cancer. And it goes back to what you said about just give yourself the grace and the space. And that's okay. It's completely okay to separate yourself and do what you need to do and focus on the things that do fill your heart and fill your cup and bring you joy and not if, you know, if thinking and talking about cancer is overwhelming, which it can be for a lot of people, then absolutely step away and do whatever you need to do to get yourself into a wonderful place. And then if you want to come back to the community at some point, they're always there for you. So everybody's journey is different and everybody's journey looks different. You just have to find kind of, it's like snowflakes, right? There's a unique kind of thumbprint to, you know, you've got your own thumbprints, you are your own snowflakes and you just find what is right for you in your own unique settings. So I think that's a, that's an important facet. Kim, thank you so much. Where can listeners connect with you online? Um, Instagram is my favorite playground, if you will. So just at Kimberly Tronic, it's uh, exactly like it sounds. It's electronic minus the elect part. So just Kimberly Tronic, as I say. Uh, come find me on Instagram, chat at me, DM me. I love talking about this. As I said, I'm an open book and uh, I just wish the best for everyone. And I just want to send out good love and good vibes everywhere. So thank you so much for allowing me to share my experience. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation. I hope that you found it helpful. I hope that it resonated with you. And there's so much emotion that goes into cancer. And I, I think that this conversation kind of gets across all of those in, in different ways. You can find Kimberly on Instagram at Kimberly Tronic. Uh, her book is available on Amazon and her Instagram account has links to all of those. As always, you can find me at Dr. Toplinski on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. If you have enjoyed this episode or other episodes of the podcast, as always, I am so grateful if you take a minute to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts as that really helps to grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. Thank you all again for listening and I will see all of you soon. Mm -hmm.